I got to tell you, after uh, being gone for almost five years now, it's still weird to me to be in this room and not in that room over there. Uh, those of you who've only been here in this room have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's still a little strange for me. I've been here for one service in this room, but it's still a little strange, but that's all right. We'll get past it. We're here to talk about Jesus, not about how strange rooms are, right? If you would turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter six, we're going to be in the entire chapter of Isaiah six, working through that. Brian told me that today would be a special day. I know he normally preaches for about two hours. Um, so he said I could take two hours and then we'll take a lunch break and come back. Is that all right? That's what we do in the West. I'm still on mountain time. So it's, you know, it's only about nine 30 to me. So we'll just go on for a while. So Isaiah chapter six, I want you to, as you're turning there, I want you to go back with me in time a couple of years to June of 2012. And then even before that, to the summer of 2007, I'd been on faculty at Southern Seminary for a couple of years at that point. And beginning in the summer of 2007, I started taking mission trips with some students to Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, why in the world would we go to Salt Lake City? You might think, well, there's so many Christians in Salt Lake City. Aren't there all these people that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City? Well, you can call it Jesus, but what you call it and what it is are two completely different things when it comes to members of the LDS Church in Salt Lake. So started taking mission trips out there and very quickly discovered that not only did I love Mormons, but I love the place where they live. Utah is a gorgeous, gorgeous area for those who have been there. We don't have speed bumps. I grew up in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Those are now speed bumps to me. We have mountains in Utah. On the east side of my house, about 15 miles, about 20 miles, actually, there are 12,000-foot mountains. It's the western side of the Rockies. That's the Wasatch Mountains. And on the west side of my house, maybe five miles, are the Ochre Mountains. They top out at just under 11,000 feet. So we have significant mountains in Utah. I've already had snow at my house. We had snow about a month and a half ago. And snow actually at my house comes in, the, in terms of about 100 inches a year. Now, I know what you're thinking. If there's two inches forecast in Louisville, the city shuts down, right? In my hometown in South Carolina, if there's a forecast of two inches of snow, the state shuts down. But if we get a foot of snow, we just call that Tuesday. And on you go. Our ski resorts get about 60 feet of snow every year. So it's a very different climate than what we're used to. 105 to 110 in the summer, very, very dry heat. Your oven is dry. You don't get in that. So don't tell me it's a dry heat. It's still hot. But started going there in June of 2007, taking mission trips there and fell in, lo- fell in love with Utah. Kept doing that. In the summer of 2012, there were some wildfires on the Ochre Mountains. It's just west of where we live. And as we took off from the airport that day, we took off to the south because there was a south wind and we turned west and went over the Ochres. And I looked down over the Ochres and I see flames on the Ochre Mountains. And that south wind is taking the smoke from those fires and it's filling the Salt Lake Valley with smoke. And it was a visual representation for me of a city lost and on fire and on its way to hell. As I'm sitting on that airplane beside somebody I didn't know, I'm weeping like a baby. Probably weeping like Dr. Payne did yesterday after Alabama finally pulled away from Mississippi State. And the person beside me probably is looking at me thinking, you are nuts. What is wrong with you? And I just couldn't take it. So I get back to Louisville and I drive home from the airport and I get home and my wife's about 1 a.m. or so on the first Sunday of July, 2012. And Stacy said, well, I'm glad to see you. Glad you're home. And I said, Stacy, I can't take it anymore. We have to go. It's time to go. We've been in Louisville at that point for 11 years, so I spent a third of my life here. She gave me her standard response when I would talk about Salt Lake, and that is, and I quote, shut up, I'm tired, let's go to bed. (laughs) So we went to bed. Got up the next morning, I was still just aching for Salt Lake City. We came to church, and Fisherville, I have to tell you, you have a faithful pastor. You have a faithful pastor who's faithful to exposit the scriptures with you every week. But sometimes that faithfulness gets in the way of the best laid plans of men. 
So we came to church, and that particular Sunday had been preaching through the book of Luke. I think that may have taken, what, eight years or so, maybe? You still in it? Yeah. I got stories about Dr. Fain. Anybody wants them, let me know. There's one particular one about a milk jug from his childhood that's particularly good. Been preaching through Luke, and he was in the passage in Luke that Sunday that included, let the dead bury their own dead, pick up your cross, and follow me. And for about 90 seconds during that sermon that Sunday morning, he dealt with how we can make our families into idols. And my wife, who's sitting right beside me, lost it crying. She was the pianist at that time, so she has to dry her tears up to go up after the service or after the sermon and play for a few minutes. And we got in the car and we shut the doors and I said, Stacy, what is wrong? She looked at me with tears in her eyes. And she said, I'm ready. Call Nam. Let's go. Now she'd said no for at that point, almost 15 years. So we contacted the North American Mission Board, thought we'd go out to plant a church, go out work with college students, and that ultimately didn't work out. It made me think, well, maybe Salt Lake is an idol for me. And then October of 2012, uh, on a Saturday night, I'm watching football, as every good Southerner does, and I got a phone call from Kevin Ezel, who's president of the North American Mission Board. He'd been our pastor at Highview for a few years, and he's a Kentucky fan, so he doesn't watch football. And he said, hey, I've got this position in Salt Lake City. And he described to me, he said, do you know of anybody who'd want to do it? And I said, well, it's interesting you called. And we talked. And then a few months later, I went down to Alpharetta, just north of Atlanta, to talk to him at NAM. And then July of 2013, we moved. We've been there since July of 2013, so almost four and a half years. And God is doing amazing things because of a faithful friend who's an expositor in the Scriptures who is teaching the scriptures faithfully. And out of that, God called us to move 1,500 miles that way. And now God has done amazing things in four and a half years. Four, four and a half years ago, there were two church plants in the greater Salt Lake metro area. Greater Salt Lake is about 2.4 million people. That's 85% of Utah's population it was, is within a 100-mile strip of each other, 100 miles north to south and about 30 miles east to west. So the entire population virtually is in that little strip. Two church plants for two and a half million people. Now there are 28 church plants that you, Fisherville Baptists, are supporting because of your gifts to the cooperative program, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Just this year so far, the church planters in the greater Salt Lake area have baptized 147 people who have given their lives to Christ and who have been moved from death to life. And this morning, when our church plants in the greater Salt Lake area meet, almost 1,600 people will gather. That's the average attendance at our plants on a Sunday morning. They'll gather to hear the Word of God preached. And Fisherville, you have a real part in that because of your prayer support, your mission team support, especially to Morgan, Utah, as Brian mentioned, and then in your financial support through giving of tithes and offerings. So I want to thank you for your stewardship. I want to thank you for your sacrifices when you give. And thank you for your sacrifices to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. Without your sacrifices, we could not do what we do. Without your sacrifices, it's very likely that those 147 people that have been baptized, saved and baptized this year, may have never had an opportunity to hear the message of Jesus. I live in a place where every day 54 people die on average and 53 of those 54 die lost. So as some of you have been here this morning for Bible study and now for worship, let's say just a span of about two and a half to three hours, in my home state of Utah, and yes, it's home, six people will die as you're sitting here this morning, and all six will wake up and hear, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. So in light of that, in light of God sending people out, in light of all the things that are happening in the world, we have to ask ourselves a very important question and the question we ask ourselves this morning is, what in the world is God doing? What is God doing? And I think Isaiah chapter 6 will answer that question for us. Now, if you know anything about me at all, you know Isaiah is my favorite book in the text. It's often referred to as the fifth gospel. Because every time you turn a page in Isaiah, you see the blood of Jesus dripping off the pages. And Isaiah chapter 6 is my favorite chapter inside of my favorite book. So it's one of those things that I just love getting into and love talking about. 
So let's look at Isaiah 6 and see if we can answer the question, what in the world is God doing? I asked that very question in 2012 when my wife said, I'm ready, call Nam, let's go. I thought we'd stay here. I thought I was a stranger in a strange place, being from South Carolina, living in Kentucky. I had no idea I'd be a South Carolinian living in the West. What in the world is God doing? So as we look at Isaiah 6, if you will, stand with me. In the honor of the reading of God's word, let's see what the prophet would have for us this morning. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he replied, go say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of the people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, They might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Although a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth of the oak that leaves the stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Lord, let us not run in front of the cross or lag behind, but keep us at the feet of Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. So the first thing I want us to see is this. From the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 6, when we try to answer the question, what in the world is God doing? We need to realize first and foremost that God is a holy God. Look at verse number one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Now, why is Isaiah specifically mentioning King Uzziah? You see, Isaiah's family was an upper class family. They were upper crust. They would have not been living in the blue collar neighborhood. They would have been in the white collar neighborhood. And his family was friends with the king, with with this kingly line. So Uzziah would have been a close personal friend of Isaiah and his family family. So when Uzziah dies, it's like a family friend of Isaiah dying. So Isaiah goes and does what the only thing he is that he knows to do. And that's he goes to the temple to pray, to try to get this burden off of him. Now, interestingly, in Salt Lake City, we have something that is very different than this particular temple experience. We have Mormon temples. In fact, you have one here in Louisville out in Crestwood. And in those temples, they don't go to worship. They don't go to necessarily to pray, but they go to do more works to get them into a higher level of heaven. So it's always fun when I go to different places. When I read this text in Salt Lake City, it means one thing. And when I read it in Louisville, Kentucky, it means a whole different thing. Because the audience in Salt Lake hears temple and sees white building with a golden angel blowing a trumpet on the top of one of the steeples. But in Louisville, you think of something different. So he's in the temple and he's praying and he has this vision. Verse one says, I saw the Lord. Now we know Isaiah is a good Jew. So we know that there's going to be some ramifications going on here. And it says that he saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. When we think about the idea that God is holy, we have to think about the very simple idea that God is separated from us. He's holy from us. He is perfect. And we are the opposite of all those things. We are imperfect. We're sinful. We're low and beaten down where he is high and lifted up. 
So Isaiah, even in this vision, sees him on this high and lofty throne. And then verse one says the hymn of his robe filled the temple. I'm reading from Christ, from the Christian standard Bible. You might have new American standard or ESV in the new American standard, the ESV. It says the train of the robe filled the temple, but Christian standard actually gets this right. It's actually the hymn of the robe that fills the temple to give you a sense of how big this vision really is. It's not the train of the robe that's filling the entire temple. It's actually just that little hymn on the train that's filling the temple. This is not just some small vision. This is not some medium sized vision. This is a grand vision and shows us how big God really is. Imagine if you were to walk into this room, a friend had just died, you decide to come to the church and you're going to pray to seek God's face and maybe help or get God to take some of this grief off of you. And you walk into maybe the old worship center, you come over here and you see this vision of God and the hymn of God's train fills this entire room. That's a big vision. That's a big God. Look at verse two. It says seraphim were standing above him. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Angels in the Bible. When we think about angels, what do we think about? We think about the cute little European fat baby that sells us toilet paper, don't we? Angel soft toilet paper. Sitting on a cloud, floating through the heavens, strumming a harp, selling us toilet paper. Or we think about those things that we buy the little wooden angels that don't have a face. The willow tree angels. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I can say y'all here, right? Okay, good. I can't say that in Utah. People think I'm weird. And especially when I say over yonder, they really don't. They want to know where yonder is. So here's these seraphim. We think about those willow tree angels, right? The faceless things. We sit them on the mantelpiece and we just kind of think they're cute. And there's the pregnant one. And there's the mom and the dad with the baby and all that stuff, right? The Bible does not present angels that way. The Bible presents angels specifically in two ways. Seraphim, which are literally beings made of fire, and cherubim, which are beings covered with eyeballs. We don't sell those in Christian bookstores. Why not? Because it would scare the kids. Right? You sit that on a mantelpiece, it looks weird. So we have to have something that's a little bit less weird. Well, that's not how the Bible presents them. It doesn't present them as some mix between Mike Tyson, Mickey Mouse, and Michael Jackson talking to you. It's not this, hey, how are you? It's a seraphim. This is a linebacker angel. This is an Alabama linebacker angel who's been eating grass-fed beef for 500 years, who can run a 4-4-40. This is a big boy, and they're standing above the throne. What are they doing? Well, Isaiah says, I'm glad you asked. Look at the rest of verse 2. It says, they each had six wings. So you've got flying, flaming angels. It says, with two wings, they covered their faces. Why would they cover their face? So that they're not looking at the presence of God. It says, with two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. Now, wait a minute. If they're flying, why do they need to cover their feet? They're already flying, so not walking on holy ground. They're covering their feet, the text says, because... Traditionally, in the ancient world, feet was chest and knees, so they're covering themselves to show their humility before God. So you got them not looking at the presence of God, showing humility before God, not walking in the presence of God. And what are they doing? Verse 3 says, one called out to another. The angels are singing. So what we can see here is a little glimpse of what heaven will be like. When I was a youth pastor in South Carolina, I had students all the time saying, what is heaven going to be like? What am I going to do? I'm going to be so bored because I'm not going to have Nintendo. Well, if your version of heaven is Nintendo, then you really need some help. We're going to be singing. And what are we going to be singing? Look at verse 3. It says that they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And literally what they're doing is they're going back and forth. So one side would sing that and then the other side would repeat it. And then the first side would sing it again. The second side would repeat it. And then the first side would repeat it again. And they're just going back and forth and back and forth. And it's interesting in verse number three, you get something here that you don't get anywhere else in the text. You get an attribute of God repeated three times. Now, if I were to ask you to describe God for me in one word, Many of you would probably say love. There's nothing wrong with that. First John tells us God is love. But nowhere in the text do we read God is love, love, love. We do, however, read that God is holy, holy, holy. 
And I would make the argument that that is his number one overarching attribute. is the holiness of God. And then it says his glory fills the whole earth. You might be in a very difficult situation right now. You may have faced difficult situations. You may think, God doesn't know what I'm going through. But what the text is telling us right here is not only is your situation completely understood and known by God, but that his glory is inside that situation. Now, that'll make you take a totally different look on the way life treats you sometimes. That God is in the business of showing his holiness and showing his glory in every single situation that has, does, and will ever happen. You may have lost a loved one. You may have lost a job. You may have gone through just the most unbelievably heart-wrenching situation to have ever faced any human in the history of human civilization, the history of human existence, and God is in the business of showing His glory through that situation. Let me tell you one of the cool things that God has done just in the last month or so in our lives. So about five or six months ago, we decided we were going to sell our house in Salt Lake and move to a different house because... Salt Lake real estate is going through the roof. We're the fastest growing state in the U.S., the fastest growing economy in the U.S. We surpassed Texas about it. Sorry for the Texans. I know Texas is better than everything, but that's just the facts. So here's this booming economy. So we decided to sell our house and move into a new house. Well, about this same time, we're getting some contacts from the Southern Baptist Convention's Women's Auxiliary, known as the WMU. WMU is going to do a story on us, and they're going to run all of this information and all of their age-graded material from mission friends, from the youngest of children to the oldest of adults. And they printed our old address in this material, and it came out in September, so just a couple of months ago. And inside that material, somewhere it mentioned that Stacy, my wife, when people come over, that she likes to bake. Here's what this turned into. What this turned into, Fisherville, is that we began receiving boxes from churches all over the country. And these boxes were filled with cake mixes. We've gotten about 400 cake mixes. Our pantry is full of cake mixes. Walmart could call us and restock their shelves with the cake mixes in our pantry from WMU groups all over the country. But remember, they printed our old address in the material. So we get a phone call one day from one of our old neighbors, and she says, hey, Stacy got it. He said, or she said, Stacy, could you come? Your neighbor has been getting boxes for you. Could you come and pick some of them up? Because the post office just missed forwarding some of them. So Stacy goes over to pick up these boxes, and she's talking to this family. It's a very, very Mormon family, pictures of temples inside and the Mormon Jesus and all those sorts of things. And he says, I've been noticing the return addresses on these boxes are all from Baptist churches. Are you all Baptist? And she said, well, yes. We're, and she shared our story. We're Baptist missionaries and shared the whole story. And, he, and she said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, the reason that we bought your house is because the kitchen was large enough because we run a bakery from our house. Stacy said, well, what do you bake? Wedding cakes. And she started laughing. And the guy said, what's so funny? And she said, if you only knew what was in all these boxes that have been sitting in your living room the whole time, you would know why that's funny. And there were probably in the boxes in the living room, probably a good 40 or 50 cake mixes. So she tells him what's in the box and she says, but it's probably Duncan Hines and Betty Crocker. And I'm sure you all don't use that. You probably make your own, you know, homemade base for your wedding cakes. He said, actually, the base for all of our wedding cakes is either Duncan Hines or Betty Crocker, because that's the easiest and most economically available way for us to create these cakes. And she said, well, go get a knife and let's break these boxes open. So they opened the boxes and there are the 40 or 50 Betty Crocker and Duncan Hines cake mixes. And Stacy said, how about you all just take these as a blessing and use these in your business? God showed his glory through cake mixes. Fisherville, if he can show his glory in a situation with cake mixes, surely he can do it in your life and in mine in other ways as well. God is in the business of showing that he's holy and he knows more than we do and he knows our situations better than we do even before we get involved in them. And he does so to show his glory through all of those things. The first thing we need to realize is that God is a holy God when we try to consider what he's doing. Now, what is he specifically doing? Let's look at verses 4 through 7 as we come to the idea that God is a graceful 
God. Look at verse four. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, the foundations of the doorways are shaking at the sound of the voices of the angels because they're singing so intently and so loudly. Now, when I'm say when I say what I'm about to say, Seth, don't no reaction. Jim, no reaction, right? Those of you who are up front up here leading during singing, no reaction, because this will get you in trouble. How many times have you looked around during corporate worship, during the singing aspect of the service, and realized that the people around you look like the founding members of the convention of Eeyore lovers from Winnie the Pooh? You're laughing because it's true. You sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And you do so with the idea in your head, hey God, thanks for noticing me. And we look like dead people when we should be the most intoxicatingly, irritatingly happy people anywhere in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Why? Because we're a congregation of people whom God has brought from death to life. The foundations of this gym should shake when we are singing praises to God. But we look like we're dead. The angels... The flying, flaming angels have us beat on this. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. So it says the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, if you remember, there's flying, flaming angels around there. So you might think, "Whoa, oh the flying, flaming angels have set the wooden temple on fire. That's why the building is filling with smoke. But that is not the case. The building is filling with smoke because the presence of God in the Old Testament is signified during the day by smoke or cloud, and at night by fire, by light. So what's happening is, is the presence of God is literally just filling this room, and it's being symbolized by this smoke. And then verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah realizes he is a sinner. He's having a vision of this holy God and he's now going to die. So he says, woe is me, I'm done. Not a good place to be, is it? Because he doesn't yet know the best two words in the Bible, which are but God. Look at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he'd taken from the altar with tongs. If you have just said to yourself, uh-oh, I'm going to die. And a flying, flaming angel goes over to the altar, pulls out a burning coal, and starts coming your direction. This is not a good day. Because if it's me, I'm thinking, this is not going to be an easy death. I'm hoping for the firing squad. I'm getting death on a pillar by fire. Now, it's also interesting in verse 6 that the seraphim reached into the altar with tongs to pull out the glowing coal. The seraphim's made of fire. Why would he need to reach into the altar with tongs to pull out the coal? His hand is made of fire. The coal's not going to burn his hand. He reaches into the altar with tongs because the altar is holy and the angel is not, and he doesn't want to defile the altar. Then look at verse 7. He touched my mouth with it. And said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. What's the one thing Isaiah was worried about? Why did he say he was going to die? Because I'm a man of unclean what? Lips. And live among a people of unclean what? Lips. What did the angel immediately go to? His lips. This angel has, because of the grace of God, as an agent of the grace of God, has removed Isaiah's iniquity because of God's grace. You see, folks, the Bible declares that we are sinful people. We do those things, those very things that God tells us not to do. Yet even in the midst of that, God shows His grace. Even in the midst of difficulty and strife and heartache and hardship, in the midst of all these things that we are told not to do, even though we do them, God shows that He is a graceful 
God. And he is a graceful God to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends. And you might, might be the means by which God has ordained from before the foundation of the world to share that grace with somebody around you. When we got to Utah in July of 13, we attended a, a large church there in, in Salt Lake. It's the church we've been a part of ever since. And for about a year or so, we decided to help one of our church plants. We did that from the summer of 14 to the summer of 15 and very close to our house. And one of the first things the church plant did is they threw a block party. Y'all know what that is? So blow up games out in the parking lot, right? All that kind of stuff. But it's a church plant, so they don't have a parking lot. So they get a local park to throw this block party in and there's this couple that's sitting at the, at the park and they're over, uh, underneath a tree because it's July and it's hot. It's about 110. So you go find shade of a tree because the wind always blows in the shade. It's about 70 degrees. So they're sitting underneath this tree and an elderly couple from the church plant walks over and they start talking to this couple. And about 10 minutes later, the elderly couple comes over to me and they said, hey, this family's got some questions and they want to talk to you about it. And so we're coming to get you. So I go over there and I have no idea who they are. They don't know who I am. They just said, hey, we want to ask somebody some questions. So I go over and I said, Hi, I'm Travis. I hear you have some questions. And the lady, who I very quickly determined was the angriest woman I've ever met in my entire life. And I've been in ministry for 20 years. I've met angry people. She looks at me with this anger in her eyes and she says, I want to know about the priesthood and temples. Go. Okay. So I talked about temples and priesthood and how in the Old Testament you have physical things. In the New Testament it becomes spiritual and we don't need specific buildings. We don't need specific priests anymore to be a mediator because we have a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And she said, okay, thank you. We're done. What's next? I said, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't understand. She said, I said, okay, we're done. What's next? And I said, look, ma'am, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't have said this. I said, ma'am, I'm really sorry. I grew up in South Carolina. We're 49th in education. We said, thank God for Mississippi every single day because they were 50th. You have to help me with, okay, we're done. What's next? And she said, I said, okay, because we accept your answer. I said, we're done because we were LDS for 36 years. I'm sixth generation LDS. My husband is fourth generation LDS and we don't want to be anymore. And I said, what's next? Because we want to know what you have because you seem happy and we're not. And how do we get happy? And I thought, really, Jesus, really? So we shared the grace of God with them and they got saved on the spot. They went home that night. They led their son and their daughter to Christ. We baptized them a few months later. And since then, they have led, Shane, the, the man, has led his father and stepmother out of Mormonism to Christ, his mother and stepfather out of Mormonism to Christ, his brother, sister-in-law, and their whole family, and sister, brother-in-law, and their whole family out of Mormonism to Christ. And I guarantee you, if you give Shane a few years, he's going to be planting a church. That's God's grace in a situation. All we did was just realize God ordains the means and the end. And we were the ordained means that day. Praise God for his grace. That's what he's in the business of doing, of sharing his grace with everyone that there is. The third thing that we have to realize is that God is ascending God. This is where it gets hard. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Now, what has Isaiah just had happen to him? What has the angel just burned off of Isaiah's body? His lips. Isaiah's like some kind of weird character from Hee Haw. His lips are gone. What's the last thing you want to do if your lips have been burned off? Talk. God asks a question. Who should I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah with no lips, likely, says, here I am, send me. R.C. Sproul, a well-known Christian theologian, says this, that Isaiah may be the only person in the history of human civilization who understands the pain of repentance. Because he's just had his lips taken from his body, burned off. And he says, I am here, send me. Is God asking because geographically he, don't know, he doesn't know who's out there? No, he's testing Isaiah's faithfulness. And Isaiah says, I'm here. I'll go. Send me. And then notice that he also doesn't have a committee structure in place. Now, I grew up Baptist. I'm Baptist born, Baptist bred. When I die, I'll be a Baptist dead, right? It's, I'm Baptist. So, I, I, but one of the things that I detest is committees. I'll just, I just don't like them. Which is funny because this past summer for the Southern Baptist Convention, I was on the committee on committees. Which I found humorous. Isaiah doesn't have a committee, a missions committee, helping him determine where to go. He doesn't have a missions committee helping him determine how he's going to finance it or when he's going to go or anything like that. 
When God calls, what does Isaiah do? He answers. I'll figure it out later, God. If you want me to go, I'm going. Look at verse 9, though. Had God told him all this before he asked the question, Isaiah may have not answered in the same way. But look at what he says. And God replied, go say to the people, keep listening, but don't understand. Keep looking, but don't perceive. Make the minds of the people dull, deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. In other words, Isaiah, thanks, man, for showing up. Glad you're going, but you're going to go and they're not going to listen. They're not going to look because if they do listen and they do see, then they might turn around and become followers of me. And, you know, we got to be really careful there. That's sarcasm. God tells him to go and to share the message, even though people are not going to listen. And then Isaiah in verse 11 asks the very question that any of us could ask. He says, then I said, until when? In other words, God, you want me to do what? Well, how long? And God replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate. The Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Well, that's reassuring. God, you want me to go talk to these people and they're not going to listen. You want me to go share with these people. They're not going to see how long. Oh, Isaiah, I want you to do it until the cities are completely gone. In other words, you want me to do it until I am dead and gone. Does Isaiah say no? If you know the rest of the story of the book, we know that that's not the case. That Isaiah indeed goes and he shares and people do listen and they do convert, but he does so at great cost to himself. In the state of Utah, the average person from the first time they hear the gospel to conversion and baptism takes seven years. From the first time they hear the gospel to the point of conversion and baptism, the average person takes seven years to convert and get baptized. Think that's easy? It's very, very difficult. And then on top of that, they take another three years to start tithing. You could be working with somebody for 10 years before they become an active tithing member of your church. So we have some guys who baptize two to three a year, some baptize four or five, some baptize 10. We have one plant that's baptized almost 20 so far this year. Why? Because God called those people from where they were to go and serve in the most non-Christian city in the United States because they were the means that he had appointed to the end of salvation for those people. And when they met those people that have since been converted and baptized, they were on the back end of that seven years. But let me tell you that sometimes in Utah doing ministry, it feels like we're doing ministry and talking to people and it's like banging your head on a concrete block and that you're going to have to continue banging your head on that block until cities lie in ruins and without inhabitants and houses are without people and the land is ruined and desolate. But God is faithful. And he is graceful. All we have to do is what he tells us to do. Is to go and share the message of Christ. Because he is indeed a sending God. You may think to yourself, well, I don't have anybody I can talk to. I just, I'm at home all the time with my family and I just, I do a few things here and there. I know all the people at work and I can't share with them. And anybody put gas in their car, you don't have to show your hand because I know everybody does. Might go to the grocery store, don't show your hand because I know everybody does. Then you're around lost people. Or at the very least, you're around people about whom you don't know their spiritual condition. Guess what? When you go to the gas station and put gas in your car, the person that pulls up at the pump across from you is stuck with you until they're done. Perfect opportunity to share the gospel. Well, I just don't know how to bring up a gospel conversation. Well, a lot of people in Louisville might have on a L shirt. If you can't bring up the gospel with the very recent situation dealing with the University of Louisville, then please let me talk to you after the service because it is not hard. How might I do that? I just don't know how I do that. Well, hey, are you a big U of L fan? Yeah, yeah, I love U of L and go cards and you know whatever it is and all that stuff. I'm a Clemson fan, so we just call ourselves national champions. 
Sorry. I know, get to 16 and then we'll talk or whatever it is, right? Yeah, I'm a big L fan. Well, and what did you think about the recent allegations at the University of Louisville with all the things going on with Adidas and possibly with Coach Patino, with Tom Jurich, and all those things? And depending on how the person responds, it's probably going to be, well, it's really sad, or, oh, man, dead gummit, and on and on and on, right? And then you just ask a very simple question, and that question is, well, do you put all of your faith in University of Louisville and the basketball team or in the coaches or in Bobby Petrino? I mean, is that, are you living for those things? If the person says yes, then you can very simply ask, well, how's that working for you? And in just one more step, you're into the gospel. If the person says no, then ask, well, what are you living for? And if it's something other than Christ, you're into the gospel. It's not difficult at all. Maybe they've got on a UK shirt. University of Kentucky just a few nights ago played Utah Valley University. It's a school about 20 minutes from where I live. I got to tell you, sorry, because I'm a Utahan, I'm cheering for Utah Valley. Which at one point I thought they might win. Maybe the UK fans in the room did too. You bring up anything, sports, weather, family, job, anything, and you can get into the gospel by simply using that question, what are you living for? God has sent us out. He tells us to be salt and light in our community. And he may be sending you to the bedroom down the hallway from yours. He may be sending you to the neighbor next door. He may be sending you to somebody that you work with. He may be sending you to your grandkids, to your great-grandkids. He may be sending you to your grandparents. He's sending you somewhere. You just have to figure out where he's sending you. You have bridges to share the gospel that I will never have. I have some that you will never have. God is sending you to share with people. Just be faithful and share. Realizing, though, at the whole, the whole time that he may be sending you into a difficult situation. I know the Brooks can tell us all about difficult situations from serving internationally. I know many of you have been on international trips and can share about difficult situations. You share about difficult situations here in Kentucky. God may be sending you to a difficult situation, but Jesus got it from the dead for you. The least you can do is feel a little uncomfortable for him. And then finally, in verse 13, we find that God is a saving God. He's a holy God. He's a graceful God. He's a sending God, and he's a saving God. Look at verse 13. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth of the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Notice that God says earlier, the land will be desolate. But here in verse 13, he says a tenth will remain. One of Isaiah's children has a very long name, and the name simply means a remnant will remain. That There will be God's people in the midst of a greater culture, in the midst of a greater society. And we are charged with calling them out. We're charged with calling people to repentance because our God is a saving God. He's just given Isaiah very difficult information. Go and share and people aren't going to listen. But what does he then say? Maybe he's saying the overwhelming majority of people or the majority of people that you're going to be with and share with maybe won't listen. But guess what? Some will. And I'm thankful to God that our church planters in Salt Lake City have been faithful to go share with everybody because if they had not, those 147 people who have been saved from death to life and baptized this year would still be lost. They would be one of those statistics that every day when those 54 people die, those 147 would still be included in that 53 who die lost. Go and spread the seed widely because God is a saving God. Here's the best part about it. The best part is because God is a saving God and we're not in the business of saving people. All we're asked to do and charged to do is share the gospel. God will do the converting. We just share, spread the seed. Well, people might reject me again. Jesus got up from the dead for you. Are you really so concerned with people looking at you strangely for a few moments? Maybe that you're unwilling to, to be concerned about their eternal state? Is that really where you are? Do you really not care about people in such a fashion that when they die, if you're standing in line, bad theology, if you're standing in line in front of them in heaven, waiting on Peter to read the names in the Lamb's book of life, that if that person is in front of you and that person's name is not found, you look at them after they hear, depart from me, work of iniquity, and simply say, oh, well, sorry. 
Is that really where you are? Or maybe you're in the place where you just don't believe Jesus. Jesus, in talking about the afterlife, when he shares about heaven and hell, talks about heaven 25% of the time and hell 75% of the time. If you believe Jesus on heaven, you have to believe him on hell. Hell is real, it exists, and it's a burning lake of fire for those who are not found in Christ at death. There is no second chance after death. It's now or never. God is a saving God, but he's doing so through the means of the proclamation of the message of Jesus. And if we're not out doing that, then God help us. Because that is something for which we will answer. And it may be that the person in line in front of you in heaven hears depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And that person turns around, it's a person you've had a relationship with your entire life. And you have to say, I'm sorry. He is indeed a saving God. What in the world is God doing? He's in the business of showing his glory because of his holiness in every situation. He's in the business of offering his grace. When he offers you his grace, he's in the business of sending you out. I'm not telling you you have to get on a plane and move your house to Salt Lake. I'm not telling you you have to get on a plane and go across the pond and move over there and be an IMB missionary. I'm simply telling you that God is sending you to lost people to share about his grace. And when you do so, realize that God is a saving God and that when you cast the net, he will draw it in. You may be here for the first time this morning and thinking, I've never heard about this Jesus guy before. This guy seems really angry. Good gracious, why in the world is he so angry? What is he talking about? I get passionate. There's a difference between passion and anger. Passion is seeing two young men between the ages of 18 and 20 ride down the street on bicycles with white shirts and ties and dark pants and a big billboard name badge on their chest that says, Elder Whatever because they're missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they're out sharing false information about who Jesus is and about who God is, and they're doing so to the tune of 100,000 of them around the world. I'm passionate because in the city in which I live, there is a group led by these leaders inside Salt Lake City, and the group is almost larger than the Southern Baptist Convention, 15.5 million members of the LDS Church around the world. I'm passionate because there are one billion Muslims around the world and hundreds of millions of Hindus and hundreds of millions of Buddhists and hundreds of millions of atheists and billions of lost people and they're all dying and on their way to hell and either we care about them or we don't. That is where we must come down. Do you care enough about lost people to share about Jesus with them? That's why I'm passionate Because if we don't share with them, maybe nobody else ever will. So the Bible is very simple about what we should share. It says this, we should share from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a very simple text. It simply tells us that we were created to be in a right relationship with him. You look in the Garden of Eden and you get God at the top. And then he ordains male and female to rule over the earth. And what happens is to rule over the animals, especially. And the animal goes to the woman and encourages her to sin. And she does so. And she encourages her husband to sin. And he does so. And then they blame it all on God. And what happens is the whole thing gets turned upside down. So that the animal is ruling over the woman who's ruling over the man who blames the whole thing on God. And what God is in the business of doing is he's saying, that is sin. It's doing the very thing that God tells us not to do. The Bible says we also get paid for messing up. Isn't that nice? The only people I know that get paid to mess up are weathermen. The only job on the planet where you can be wrong 50 or 60% of the time and still have a job. If you're a weatherman, I'm sorry. That's just an example. But you know, you, you might watch whoever on local weather station, uh, tomorrow's forecast, 80 and sunny and bright, and you wake up and it's 60 and raining. And they say, oh, sorry, we missed this, and it's okay. Well, the Bible says we get paid to mess up, and we get paid to sin, and that's found in Romans 6.23. It says the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. 
So that payment is nothing more than physical and spiritual death. You can't escape physical death, but the Bible says in the rest of Romans 6.23 that you can't escape spiritual death. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but... Best word in the Bible. Best word in the Bible is not Jesus. The best word in the Bible is but. Especially when it appears beside God, because the best two words in the Bible are but God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, you're going to die physically and spiritually, but God can save you. He will save you from that spiritual death if you'll just place your trust in Jesus that when he died on the cross, he did enough and that you don't have to do any more. The Bible also says in the book of Romans that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were spitting in his face and blaspheming his name and doing everything he told us not to do, he died for us. And then Romans chapter 10 says that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will what you will be saved. That's the simple message of the text. We were born to be in a perfect relationship with him. We messed up and he fixed it. That's it. The entire Old Testament is all about who God is. The entire New Testament is about all is about who God is in his son, in Christ. It's all about him. It's not about us. It's all about his glory and his holiness and his grace. And he's sending us out to share that because he's in the business of fixing something that we created. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith, your trust in Jesus that he did enough. I want to tell you this morning that today can be your birthday. Today you can place your trust in Christ. I woke up this morning, I looked out of the windows at the hotel and I thought, it's another dreary day in Louisville. But today can be a bright, sunny day in your life. Because today Jesus can turn you from death to life. If you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You can be saved. Folks, I want to tell you this morning, if you've never done that, there's no better time than right now to do that. I'd love to talk to you after the service. The pastor would love to talk to you after the service. Seth would be happy to talk to you. There are other leaders around who would be more than willing to talk to you about who Jesus is, about what he's done for you. Just stop and ask. Don't leave this place until you do so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are God, thank you that you are in the business of being a holy God, a graceful God, a sending God, and a saving God. Lord, we ask today if there's one here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that you would bring that person from death to life. Lord, you would prompt them in their hearts to talk to somebody before they leave. God, thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us in Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen.